0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this inaugural lecture, Professor David Coley from the Department of Architecture and Civil Engineering will address why so few buildings in the UK are built using the low-energy technologies that are now available. Uh, Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming. Um, If anyone's taking notes, you don't need to. There's an essay-based version there that you're welcome to have at the end. Um, What I want to do tonight is to try and change your view about buildings. Um, If I can get you to start looking at buildings in a different way, if I can get you to start looking at overglazed facades as just bad engineering, leaky doorways as bad engineering, I'll have done a reasonably good job. If I can get you to think that certain buildings should never have been built from an engineering and environmental point of view, I'll have done a good job. But I won't have been truly successful until I can get you to change your aesthetic values. I want you to see certain buildings and certain bits of buildings as actually morally indefensible. Now, if I can do that, I will have um, really succeeded. I looked up what the definition of evil is, and I got this off Wikipedia, the font of all knowledge. Um, And you can see in there it would be quite difficult to describe a building as conscious. So maybe a better title for the talk would have been, are those who design, commission, live in and operate buildings evil? But that wasn't quite so snappy, so I left it out. Okay, but I want you to concentrate on those words conscious and harm, and possibly destructiveness. And we're going to use that to judge whether buildings are evil and maybe whether we're evil. Okay. I'm only going to touch on one aspect of the built environment, um, and that's climate change. There's lots of other things I could have talked about. Mold growth, uh, fuel poverty, hypothermia, volatile organic compounds coming off certain building materials, water shortages in the world. But I'm going to concentrate on climate change. And the reason I'm going to concentrate on that is I think it's the most important issue for the built environment, But it's also because I personally believe there's something slightly pernicious about this relationship between the highly energy-using parts of the world who are rich and who won't suffer particularly badly from climate change, certainly not in the early years, and other parts of the world which are extremely poor and have very, very low carbon emissions. Yet they are the ones who are going to suffer for the way that we behave. Now, I'm going to start off by just doing a 101 on climate change and then we're going to quickly return to buildings. So just stay with me. Okay, why is the climate changing? The most important thing to realise is the temperature difference between Earth and the Moon. Why is it 33 degrees C colder on the Moon? The reason is we're surrounded by a blanket of greenhouse gases, most notably water vapour and carbon dioxide. Um, And they warm the atmosphere by the amounts indicated in the table. What that indicates is that if we didn't have greenhouse gases, and we were minus 19 degrees C, then we wouldn't have liquid water. We probably wouldn't have life on Earth. If we did, it probably wouldn't be life like ours, like us, um, for one. So those greenhouse gases are critical. And secondly, they are the main, one of the main links, possibly the, second only to the sun, in our life support system. It's actually an in-flight life support system because we're spinning at 1,000 miles an hour around our axis. We're going around the sun at 67,000 miles an hour. And we're going around the galaxy at half a million miles an hour. So you've got to be quite a brave person, given a rock, doing that in space, to actually play around with the in-flight survival system. Um, But that's exactly what we're doing. Now... This Swedish scientist in um, 1894 um, started to think about climate change and what would happen if we carried on using fossil fuels. Um, he did a whole load of calculations. They were quite impressive calculations. took him several years, paper and pencil. And what he showed was, well, what he believed he'd shown, is that if we were to double the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by burning coal mainly at the time, then that would lead to an increase in the mean temperature of the Earth of 2 degrees C. Now, that's really quite interesting because the Met Office and others with multi-million pound computers have spent an incredible amount of processing power over the last 10 years to come up with the same number. So, students, you can do an awful lot with a piece of paper and a pen before you turn on your laptops, okay? Okay. Um, he got a very good answer, it's very, very accurate. Um, but unfortunately, his second con- conclusion was that at the rate that carbon was being used at the time, fossil carbon was being used, it would take about 3,000 years to double the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So it was a potential problem, but not a potential over a reasonable time frame. Well, it turns out that we are probably double the concentration in the next few decades, within your lifetime, not within 3,000 years, because we've massively accelerated our use of carbon dioxide. One thing I want to clear up is the term greenhouse gases, greenhouse warming, and the greenhouse effect, and to say it's got nothing to do with um, greenhouses, okay? Nothing at all. The reason it says warm in a greenhouse is because the sunlight coming through the windows warms the earth, the plants inside, they re radiate and warm the air around them. Okay? The glass in the greenhouse does not magnify the sunlight, it doesn't trap the sunlight. Okay? There's a little bit, it's not easy to get infrared light through glass, but that really doesn't matter. The only thing the greenhouse really provides is a windproof barrier to stop hot air leaving and cold air coming in. You can build it out of a material that lets infrared radiation through, and it works almost as effectively. Now, um, this is a picture I like showing of the Earth. It's from an Indian satellite. Um, If we look up um, towards here to the Gulf region, you can see very clearly the coastline. That must mean that a photon of light left a grain of sand on a beach and came all the way out to a satellite where the image was taken, and that light particle, that photon, was not molested in any way by the atmosphere it traveled through. It traveled through a lot of atmosphere, but it sliced through cleanly and was unperturbed. Its direction didn't change. That's in the visible, and we, can, we look at the world at the visible frequencies, but we can also look using a camera in the infrared. Infrared's heat, okay? So, those hot particles on that hot beach are also radiating heat, infrared photons, and they're coming through the atmosphere, but we can't see where they came from. There's no directional information. That is not a picture of clouds. It's the same as this picture, okay? but it's lost all directional information, and that's because the photons have been scattered by the, um, the gases in the atmosphere, not by oxygen, not by nitrogen, but by the greenhouse gases. And the way that's happened is essentially by the photons interacting with the molecules. It's terrible going through this. I've got a professor of physics in the room. Okay. Going, vib, causing vibrations in the bonds of the molecules. Okay. Now, there's something ironic in that. The problem we have with is climate change, and the problem we have is the vibration of bonds and the interaction of, uh, of that with um, infrared radiation. Now, the reason we burn fossil fuels is actually the same reason. We love those vibrations. We love heat. Heat is the reason we use the majority of our fossil fuels, not to produce chemical compounds. We drive our cars through it. We heat our homes through it. Um, Strangely enough, we produce water by the process by boiling vast tons of water, we make electricity by boiling vast tons of water and blowing turbines around. And I find that kind of strange, that in the 21st century, we make the majority of our electricity by boiling water in large kettles. But the downside of that is that those same vibrations, those same photons, when they're thrown back at us from the upper atmosphere, scattered in random directions, including downwards, which is why we're getting warmer, okay, it leads to growing problems like this. Now, we've got this prediction of a 2 degrees centigrade uh, rise in temperature. How serious an issue is that? Well, um, modern, the Met Office and, uh, and other people uh, who are doing modern calculations also come up with 2 degrees C under certain assumptions. Other, other assumptions, namely if we don't start behaving ourselves, they come up with around 4 degrees C. And being we're doing virtually nothing to combat climate change, we might as well make 4 degrees C the working assumption. Well, the te- mean temperature difference between London and Nice is 5 degrees C. So in our buildings, in our architecture, we should probably be planning for a five degrees, four, 4 degrees rising temperature and a climate fairly similar to Nice, Okay, which is quite scary if you think what that looks like and what that feels like. In 2003, we had 14,000 um, elderly people die in Paris in a heat wave. Okay, that heat wave would be seen as normal, is going to be seen as, as normal by 2040, and strangely cold as the summer in 2060. So we have to be ready for that, and we have to design buildings capable of, of dealing with that, and we have to build sea defenses um, that can deal with the rise in sea level. But I no doubt we can meet those challenges. Other strange events are going to happen. We used to have a North Pole. I assume the North Pole will not survive my lifetime. Okay. But that's us. What about countries that are closer to the equator and poorer and have no money to build um, sea defences and have enough of a problem... um, surviving at the moment. Well, this graph is from a new scientist. You don't need to read the text at all. Just look at the pretty colors. Um, the brown areas, are, the assumption is in this paper that um, they will not, people in those areas cannot easily live due to extreme weather or floods. And in the yellow areas, they cannot grow enough food to survive. They're essentially deserts. That's a four-degree world. Okay? So the question becomes where... What is the battle plan for the people living in these areas? Now, I can only come up with three possibilities. They migrate north, essentially, and there's plenty of space. There's the UK. Scotland's not full. Um, well, Mid-Wales. Um, but we've, more importantly, we've got Canada population, I think. Are got any Canadians here? About 40 million. Absolutely massive. And we've got um, the former Soviet Union. Okay, the whole of Northern Europe. The population can move northwards, but is it politically acceptable? If it's not politically acceptable, the other two options are some massive Berlin airlift-type operation going on pretty much forever to support these people in these uninhabitable zones. These people will probably be all right because they can import food. Um, Or we let them die. I can't think of another alternative. Now, what's this got to do with buildings? Well, these are carbon emissions um, from the world. Now, often people say, Whoa, well, it's really difficult to do carbon negotiations, and then there's the rise of China and they're, and India, and they're not willing to sign up to certain agreements, etc. Um, and there is some logic in all of that. But one thing you need to remember is carbon dioxide lasts for a very long time in the atmosphere the climate change that we're seeing today isn't just about our climate emissions today it's the climate emissions that were occurring in 1920 rather carbon dioxide is still up there so what we probably and a lot of the damage has already been done glacier retreat that's, a, that's that in its own right exposes rocks that are dark and therefore increase temperatures okay so we should probably look at full like, well go back as far as we can i 've gone back to 1900 because I had the data to go at I time, but total historic carbon emissions um, and these are the leading villains in the piece in the top graph, okay and we can see there the United States is definitely the baddie, uh, Russia and China are quite large, but Germany and the uk have got some pretty big responsibilities. But some of those countries are very large. if we divide it by the population and become the the, the historic or since 1900 total cumulative carbon dioxide emissions from these countries, we see a very different picture. We see that India and China wouldn't actually get into this data set. There's other countries down here which are far more important than they are. Okay? And we see the UK and Germany being as important as the USA. So the logic that beats up the USA or beats up China isn't very logical. And I think it's this lower graph. Which is the best statement of responsibility. OK, so what's this got to do with buildings? Well, as it turns out, 60% of carbon dioxide emissions in the Western world are from the built environment. So that's lighting our spaces, computers in our spaces, heating our spaces, cooling our spaces. OK? Whereas the big villains that most people have got in their heads are 4x4s and aircraft. They're not. Windows, windows are far more important than aircraft in this game. Okay, so we have a huge responsibility in a Department of Architecture and Civil Engineering because the majority of the emissions come from our discipline. Right. Now, we can't stop using energy. In fact, we want to use more of it or use it more wisely. These graphs here show the relationship between GDP and energy consumption. For the USA as a time series. That's quite an impressive straight line. Not many research projects end up in straight lines that good. And then for a whole bunch, basket of countries in 1990. Okay, rich ones at the top, poor ones at the bottom. It's pretty clear that you need to have a substantial level of energy use to have a decent GDP. And the more energy that you can use, the better. Now, the problem we've got is we want to remove a whole load of people from living in this condition on the left and put them in the condition on the right. Or maybe something houses a bit more pleasing than that, but that's the basic philosophy. Okay? We need to get between those two points. And it's inconceivable that if developing nations follow the same path as we followed, the only thing that can happen is carbon, um, carbon use can increase. Carbon emissions can increase. I can't see an alternative. Unless somehow we can stop this from being true. Somehow, if we can turn a corner such that GDP can rise, yet carbon emissions, energy use, and carbon emissions don't have to rise. Now, possibly we could use renewable energy um, to do some of that, and we're hoping to do that. Okay? And interesting enough, China will very soon become the leading nation for renewables in the world. But I think efficiency is going to play an absolutely massive role. The efficiency of buildings in particular, because they're 60%. Now, if we look at responsibility again, if we compare fuel efficiency of cars, okay, if you compare that Range Rover to uh, that three-cylinder Suzuki over there on the right, the difference there is, in fuel consumption is approximately a factor of four. Okay? So maybe there's a good reason to shout at the 4x4 driver. If we look at these two houses, this house costs about £1,500 to heat a year. The one on the right, £50 a year. It's a factor of 30. We are way behind the curve of the automotive engineering. Their, uh, their worst cars okay, are quite incredible compared with our worst houses. Now... I don't want to go on too much about peop- to people who live in thatched houses, because I live in a thatched house. Um, but it's, it's true. It's a problem. Now, the problem, though, is us, not the house. Because when that house was built, it was lit by candles, and it had a wood fire, which didn't work very well at all. But it cheered people on cold winter nights. Now, we don't live like that anymore. We want to live in the thatched cottage, but make it look like that. And that is a huge challenge. And I really think that we need some new way of thinking, a new language to relate the form of buildings to the harm that they're doing. We need to be able to look at a building and think about what it's doing to other people who live in locations in the world where a high spring tide is somewhere like the first floor of their mud hut. Now... We don't live in thatch cottages. We don't go to work in thatch cottages as a whole as a nation. We live in much more modern buildings. So, we've obviously learned something over the time. We've got cavity walls. We've got insulation. So, things have obviously improved. Well, look at this. Um, this is a graph of the um, carbon emissions, kilograms of carbon, per meter squared of floor area for schools in England. It's from a very large data set. Now, this is not the date that the energy data was collected. This is it was all collected at the same time, not only a few years ago, but the date of the, the majority of the architecture. It's flat. So, a modernish school uses the same amount of energy per meter squared, despite the cavity walls, despite the insulation, despite the double glazing, despite the high fre- frequency lighting systems, okay, as a Victor- pretty much a Victorian school. Now, we've been a bit more successful in housing of late, but only very modestly. And a 1980s house uses the same amount of energy per meter squared as a Victorian dwelling. We have essentially got nowhere with our technology. If we look at it just over the last few years, and we just keep the schools static, this is all for the same schools, um, Energy use is rising. Despite the introduction of laptops rather than computers and better lighting systems, etc., we keep just using more and more and more energy in our buildings. Now, here's an example. I'm allowed to do this one because it's beating up another university. This is Exeter University. And on the left there, you have a brand new triple glazed building. Um, and it uses the same amount of energy per meter squared as the 1956 administration block on the right. Okay? And I find this fascinating. Because I'm sure the vice chancellor at the time said, I want some kind of eco-building. I want a green building. Give me a green building. And there's various ways that could have been specified. But he ended up with that. And probably got a bit of a shock when he saw the fuel ball. Although it's interesting to know whether he did look at the fuel bill, or was distracted by trying to get into the Russell Group. I don't know. Right. So the question is why? Why are we so pathetic? Why have we been so unsuccessful? Well, I've made a list here. It's a bit of a random list, okay? Um, But here's some ideas. Higher internal temperatures. In, um, In the 1970s, mean internal temperatures in winter in UK homes was about 14 degrees C. That's throughout the whole house. It'd be warmer in the living room, colder in the bedrooms. Okay, um, It's now about 20, mean throughout the house. Okay, So it must be warmer in the living room. In Sweden, it's 22, mean whole house. It must be 24 or so in the living spaces. This seems a just continuous rise. Now, some increase was expected, but I don't think anybody expected that kind of um, situation. We love highly lit spaces, particularly commercial spaces. So many of the gains that we should have had from modern lighting systems have been lost because we just light everything like an operating theater. Um, fuel is so cheap, we might leave doors open in winter, windows open in winter. okay, And we can put up with it because our heating systems are very powerful, gas boilers, radiators, quite c- capable of making up the difference. Okay? So we just do it. And I'm sure we've all been seen student accommodation where the temperature control is the window. Okay. Glass. Architects love glass. Now, glass has a role to play, definitely. It stops you going mad. You can look out the window. However, it leads to overheating. The U value, the conductivity of, <laughs> of even triple glazing is terrible compared with a brick wall with a cavity and a bit of fluff inside it. Okay, um, we love sticking out bits so our surface area of our buildings is larger than it needs to be for the floor area okay. and the heat loss is proportional to the area not uh, of the area of, uh, of the enclosing surfaces not of the floor area um, IT, it's very rare that the purchasing strategy for IT is based on um, how energy efficient the IT is it'll be based on something else and we also do to think crazy things like we have server rooms with cooling next to rooms that are being heated by gas boilers. But there's other things. Thermal mass can play a role. Um, the heating system can be an inappropriate choice. The controls can be terrible. The build co- poor building control. We spend 90 million, 90 billion a year with the construction industry in the UK. A lot of that on new buildings, and I don't think we're getting very good value at all, being we fail to suppress energy use at all. Now, this is the exercise I want everybody to go home and do and stick with it the rest of their life. If somehow we had a way of working out how efficient our buildings is, are, we could make a little bit of progress. Well, we do have a way. We simply take the annual energy consumption and divide it by the internal area of the house, the floor area of the house. That gives you a very simple value, and you can look that value up in tables and compare it to buildings of the same type. You might be doing this commercial building. You might be doing it for a data center or your own house. And you can look at and you can classify whether it's good or bad or whatever. Okay. And you get some idea. Now, I find it very interesting that most of us know that 20 miles, an hour, 20 miles per gallon for a car is not very good and 75 is very good. Very few people in this room, very few architects, very few engineers very few people who buy million-pound buildings know what that number should be for a good building or what represents a bad building. And I think we should carry that number in our head in exactly the same way as we do for cars. Now, these things have come on onto the stage by the government to do exactly that. Energy display certificates. There's one downstairs, I think. Um, And they do say how good the building is by rating it from A to G, just like washing machine energy consumption. But it's, it's basically the sum up the top. Okay. Now, look for those. And when you go around any public building, have a look whether you're in an A-rated building, and if not, ask not, particularly if it's a newish building. Now, let's have some craziness. Now, we need to have some physics here. I'm trying to get to some answers. Now, why do we heat buildings? It seems obvious to keep ourselves warm, but we're at 37 degrees C. Buildings aren't heated more than 22. Second law of thermodynamics. You heat buildings. Buildings never heat you. Okay, so maybe we can use our heat to heat a building if we could make it energy efficient enough. Now, this is the kind of thing that drives me completely crazy. Who designed that thing on the left? What is the purpose? I understand this bit. I do not understand the heating plate, and particularly this heating plate up here. If this vessel was insulated, there would be no need for the heating plate. The coffee is not, you're not going to keep it for 47 days, it will evaporate. You're going to keep it for an hour. It's barely drinkable when you start. It's not going to be drinkable two hours down, four hours down the line. For an hour, a simple bit of polystyrene or some other compound around there would keep it warm. I have no idea. It would be more flexible. You could take it to the till if you were serving it. I don't understand it. Why do we cool buildings? You think buildings get too hot if you don't cool them. Well, they don't get cool hot by magic. They get hot because of the things that are happening inside and the sunlight streaking in. And we should see those as challenges and work with them. Engineering challenges. But we don't. We just call our buildings instead. Why do we light buildings during the day? I have no idea why we do this. But the lights are normally on in buildings, whether the buildings have windows or not. So we know windows do not suppress use of lighting. Now, I'm going to do some sums here. Now, one person is 100 watts. And that happens to be 100 hummingbirds. Hummingbirds are 1 watt, apparently. Now, if we take a house, these are the gains we've got. We've got people, metabolic gains. We've got this 100 watts from each person. We've got a fridge. We've got sunlight, blah, blah. Very roughly. That might come to something like 960 watts, 960 hummingbirds. We've got losses. And if we build a trendy house like this from Grand Designs, okay, super insulated, triple glazed windows, we can get the loss from that on a winter's day down to about 1,040 hummingbirds. So we are short of about 80 watts, 80 hummingbirds, or, more normal unit, three candles. This house can easily be heated on a winter's day by three candles. Now, once you've got three candles heating your house, you can get rid of the radiator. Once you've got rid of the radiator, no one can leave it on. And you replace that with something like this. This is a mechanical ventilation system with heat recovery. Fit it in a loft space or wherever you fancy. And that will keep your house warm, but only if you keep the windows closed in winter. In summer, you can open them for ventilation. But that's not capable of heating a house if you mess up. You'll learn a lesson within day one. Now, such houses, buildings, we believe, cost about 6% more to actually build. But they don't increase the cost of the house by 6% because you've got the land costs. So you're adding maybe £6,000 to a £200,000 house. Okay, to remove virtually the need to heat it. This machine, and a little bit of heat on very cold days, probably comes to about £50 pounds a year. Um, for a commercial building, for a school, you might be looking at a cost of £20,000 a year um, for heating. And for a large office block, half a million. That can be removed by using such devices. But only if we super insulate, we make them airtight, the buildings... We do it right, but we can't do it a little bit right. Adding a bit more insulation, we know, historically, doesn't work. We have to go to the point where we, we're so well insulated, so airtight, that we remove the systems that cause the trouble. We have to make it feel really warm inside those buildings, so the surfaces have to be warm as well. Okay, It's interesting. We pay a winter fuel allowance in this country, and we... You know, if that goes to the, um, to the individual, imagine it didn't. Imagine it went to the local authority who houses that individual instead. Okay, They're getting that money. Well, that's quite... That's kind of, if you're getting four or six or eight hundred pounds a year, okay, that easily plays for the loan of the extra six thousand pounds that you needed to build a building like this. So... For social tenants, it could well pay for itself. And Frankfurt do not build any other form of social housing anymore. And the mayor has said, I cannot afford to build any other type of um, housing because he's paying for the, um, for the fuel. So it can be done. And there's 20,000 or more around the world. We don't really know how many, 20 to 40,000 of them. Here's some examples. But there's factories as well. There's um, schools, there's office blocks, all using this philosophy. And it's a philosophy about turning a point, not doing the same, but slightly better. It's about doing something. Now, a little analogy here. Back in the 80s and the 70s, in a workshop, probably in this university, calendars like this were typical. Canteens, they would have been typical as well, and scattered all around the place. We don't have them anymore on our walls. And it's easy to think, well, what, what, why don't we have them anymore? Now, obviously, um, our view of such objects has changed. And what they represent, our view of that has changed. Okay? So that's obviously the reason we've removed them. Well, that is part of the reason. But the main reason we removed them is because we could remove them by taking a pin out of the wall. And the wall did not collapse they were not holding the roof up. Buildings like this, which I want you to see as morally indefensible and causing harm to others across the world, so having serious ethical issues, we would probably like to do the same. But we can't. Because unlike the calendar, those walls hold the roof up. Or the structure that holds the glass up holds the roof up. Um, We cannot knock that down at no cost. We can't throw it in the bin without spending money. So we are stuck. And one of my main points I want to make is to build buildings which embody this essentially today, knowing that the UK has committed itself to an 80% cut in carbon emissions, and the government will force the owners of buildings to participate in that cut, and bear the majority of the costs of that cut mean that you're building buildings which are saving up huge unknown costs for their owners. Because you can't just take a calendar off the wall and throw it around. Now, that's in money terms, but there's other terms. These buildings, this is a name and shame campaign by the government putting these up. That's what it's about. And this type of name and shame campaign is going to grow in prevalence. Okay. So your building that you stick up, which is a gas-guzzling building and has this bad rating on its wall, that unlike the calendar, they're both paper items, this you can't take down, mandated by law. Okay? And it isn't just there for Christmas. It's there for the whole life of the building. And every customer who comes into your building prospective student or ever will go past that sign. Now, we, most people don't know what this means yet, but they will start to. Here's something that makes me a bit sad. Fair trade coffee. Obviously a good thing to do. The lights are on. It's a poor overglass facade. There's irony there. Probably not seen by the owners and operators. But, from this day, henceforth, you... You'll see such irony, I hope, if you haven't already. So let's return to the question of evil. Okay? Now, I think what I've discussed, okay, although the building's not conscious, we are making conscious decisions. If we don't build a good building, we are being conscious and deliberate. Okay? And I believe we're doing wrong do- do- wrongdoing. I think we, there's definitely discrimination involved because this is not an even playing field. There's people here with the lowest carbon emissions. They can't control the system. We control the system. They're going to suffer the worst. Okay? Now, we may not be designing things deliberately to harm other people, but we know that they are harming people. And that's already started. You know, most of the age agencies assuming now that they will need to feed people in Africa at a rate proportional to a changing climate. Okay. Thank you.